0: Welcome to Episode 342 with my guest, Cal Holger. Uh, I'm Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads from medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas, and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking. Uh, This show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm not a therapist. It's not a doctor's office. It's more like a waiting room that doesn't suck. The the website for this show is mentalpod.com. MetalPod is also the Twitter handle that you can follow me at. And um, if I seem a little bit out of it tonight, it's about 2 in the morning my time on uh, Wednesday and i recording the show early. Normally I re- record it uh, late Thursday night uh, Pacific time and then post it just after uh, you know midnight or 1 o'clock uh, in the morning on Friday morning Pacific time. But I'm going to be in San Francisco uh tomorrow for two days, going to do some live podcasts. And um, so I fly out tomorrow and I'm juggling about 900 things uh, right now. Um, the divorce paperwork is kind of, uh, we're still in the midst of that, separating stuff financially. I'm getting kicked out of my apartment, I'm looking for a new place to live. Um, it's, you know, it's all quality problems. I'm very grateful to have the life that I do. Um it's just I think the perfectionist in me wants to do everything perfectly and I'm just it, I'm exhausted. I'm completely exhausted. And um so uh there aren't going to be uh, much in the way of surveys for this uh this episode but the the interview with uh, Cal is one of my favorites. It's such a thoughtful um uh, I'm not going to try to explain it. Um, what I want to tell you about, um, I had a moment about an hour ago that I, I just came from a hockey game and, um, I had a moment that to me kind of embodies what recovery looks like for me on a, on a daily basis. Um, It's for me. It's about the little things that you do every day, and you do enough of those little things, and then those build into what what recovery, emotional recovery, or recovery from you know um, uh, drinking or using drugs or whatever you know anybody's addiction is. So I'm, I'm playing hockey, and I think because I've been stressed about where am I going to live, et cetera, um, I put a bid in uh, on a house. I don't know if it, houses are getting really expensive here and um I don't know if it's it, it will be enough money to get this house but I I really like it and um I don't know even if they did accept the bid if I would be able to move in in time or if I'm going to have to move from this apartment to another apartment and then move in so it's just all of this stuff is swirling around in my head that wants to do everything perfectly so I'm playing hockey and um and I go to get the puck in the corner and uh and this guy and I kind of mash up against each other uh, against the boards and and I'm trying to poke the puck uh, which is at his feet and my hand kind of uh, goes between him and the boards and he like cl- chicken wings my stick. He like clamps down on my stick. It's it's a trick that a lot of hockey players will do so the ref can't see that they're actually holding your stick. And um, so he does that and what your smart thing to do when they do that to your stick is take your hand off your stick. So then the ref can see this guy is holding your stick. So that's what I do. I pull my hands back. I look at the ref, and the ref's not doing anything. And this guy then takes my stick with his hand and throws it. <laughs> and the ref doesn't call a penalty, and I'm out of my mind at this point. It's just like any emotional recovery is lost on me at this point. And this guy that, that had done this uh skates to the front of our net, and uh, one of his teammates is winding up to take a slap shot, and of course, this guy's going to try to tip it in past our goalie. So I go o- blazing over there as fast as my uh, old body will allow me, and uh, and I bring my stick down to knock his stick out of the way, but because I'm so amped up, I completely miss his stick, and just slash, uh, his knee pads, which was clearly a penalty, which the ref called. But in that moment, I was so upset that the ref didn't see, cause they always call the retaliator. They never call the person that instigated the thing that pissed off the person that retaliated. So, um, I'm stewing in the penalty box and trying to calm myself down, uh, a little, a little later in the game, uh, I fumbled the puck and I could hear this guy because we were near his bench. I could hear him say to his teammates, that guy sucks. <laughs> and I can just feel the rage building in me. And I'm like, am I going to hit this guy? Am I going to... That is not the thing to do. That's not going to... Yeah, it will make me feel better for about a minute. But it's not a good habit to get into. And uh, I might hurt him or myself. Who knows? So... I don't do anything. I just try to play hard and clean as much as I can. It's a tie game. It goes to a shootout. Our team doesn't score. Their team scores one goal, so it goes to their team next. And if they score this penalty shot not penalty shot, but uh um why am I blanking on the name of it? Uh shootout uh attempt, they'll win. And who goes up to take it? This motherfucker. And I'm like, Oh, universe, are you really going to do this? Are you really going to have this motherfucker win the game? And he did. He won the game. And I was like, Oh God, I so want to say something. Because then you do the handshake line afterwards. And that's, to me, is where recovery really comes in. Because that is where... I make myself do the right thing. And I shook their hands. I complimented the guys that played well. Their goalie played great. I make sure to tell him that. I told this guy as he passed me, good game, good game, good game. And then I circled around and I uh, skated up to him and I said, hey, I just want to apologize for slashing you. I was frustrated. And, uh, And he was very, he was so uh he was so kind about it he he said uh, whatever <laughs> i don't even know what he mumbled but the point is it wasn't about what i get from him it's about me cleaning my soul shrinking my ego and reminding myself that i don't have power over people upsetting me or not upsetting me. I don't have power over how other people act to me. I can just choose how I react to it. And I was proud of myself. And I couldn't wait to come tell you guys. Um, speaking of uh, recovery, I've told you guys about our sponsor, BetterHelp.com. Uh, I love them. It is uh, a great online uh, therapy service. Uh, If you want to check it out, go to betterhelp.com slash mental. Make sure you include the slash mental uh, part because uh, then they'll know you came from the website and they'll continue uh, hopefully to advertise with us because we do need advertising. Um, So go there, uh, just fill out a questionnaire, and then they'll match you up with a betterhelp.com counselor. And then you can experience a free week of uh, counseling to see if online counseling uh, is right for you. And you have to be over 18 and i highly recommend it uh, i've had a lot of listeners giving me great feedback uh, about their experience with it and uh, i've been using a betterhelp.com counselor now for uh, about a year and um, i love her i love her um, what am i want to tell you <laughs> here's a little tip for you guys uh, i'm uh, i think because of the self-induced stress lately uh, i've been doing some sugar eating at dawn <laughs> That's my new workout uh, video, by the way. Sugar-eaten at, at, at dawn. <laughs> it just shows me on a on a beach. And if it, it, it says the sun rises, and it's just my belly, and you think it might be a beached whale. And then I pop up, and I say, are we ready to do... Are we ready to do some sugar-eating? <laughs> but here's what I caught myself doing. Looking at myself in the mirror, and inventing stretches <laughs> so I don't look as fat like I notice I look great if I pretend that I'm doing the wave among a group of people or I'm reaching to scratch the ceiling I, my abs look terrific when I'm doing that um, I hope that I don't run out of stretches because um, I, I just don't want to see that day but um I want to tell you about our other sponsor, Blue Apron. Uh, you know, I talk about self-care a lot on the podcast. And using Blue Apron is a really big part of self-care for me. Um, three or four times a week, I will uh, take time out, slow down, cook a delicious meal, um, not look at my phone, and... There's just something so nice about doing nice things for yourself and 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 not being in a hurry doing it. Uh, Blue Aprons is a number one fresh ingredient and recipe delivery service in the country for less than ten bucks a meal. They deliver seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients right to your door. Um, They are uh, you spend so much less time at the grocery store. Um, Or what I do is if I don't know what I'm going to eat. Uh, you know, before I started doing Blue Apron, I would just not eat at all because I couldn't make my mind up. Uh, oh, do I feel like going somewhere or, you know, what do I have in the fridge? I like having those, those three meals, uh, a week to look forward to. Um, I'm learning stuff, I'm learning, learning things that I actually didn't learn, uh, when I was doing a cooking show. For, uh, for all those years. So here's some upcoming meals uh, in August. Uh, basil pesto chicken with summer vegetable panzanella, sauteed shrimp and green beans with clove tomatoes, spinach, and orzo pasta, whole grain pasta and summer vegetables with heirloom tomato caprese salad, caprese, uh, miso butter salmon and lo mein noodles with cucumber and charmed tomatoes, and meatball pizza, with fresh mozzarella cheese and charmed tomatoes. I'm looking forward to that one. So check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash mental. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron. So don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash mental. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Okay, I just want to read two surveys real quickly, and then we'll get to the interview with Cal. This one is filled out by a sullen artist, and she writes, uh, this is a happy moment, she writes, uh, listening to Dana Eagle, and that's last week's uh, guest, talk about her experience with her cousin coming out to her, reminded me of when my cousin came out to me. I'm pansexual and very open about it. At a family barbecue, my male cousin sat by me and asked if we could talk. He came out to me as bisexual, and I assured him that it's fine. I'm proud of him for coming out and we talked for a couple of hours. A few months later, he came out on Facebook to his family and I spent the whole day reading comments making sure I didn't have to fight anyone. Everybody was supportive and lovely and he thanked me for helping him feel comfortable enough to come out. Now he has a boyfriend, has graduated high school on time after thinking he wouldn't and I'm so incredibly proud of him. That's, you know, I never in my lifetime thought that I would hear a story of somebody coming out and having an entire family, and even extended family, be supportive. That is so awesome. And then this is an uh, awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself dead squiggly line. And he writes, I haven't reread my mom's suicide note in 20 plus years since I first got it back from the morgue with her things. The only thing I remembered about it is that she incorrectly spelled loser. I'm so scared of being alive and so scared of dying. I was so, so lonely, but I couldn't bear being around people. I and mean, it hurt. I've just been like very interested in dicks. I don't know how to let loose and just be. All my alters have different handwriting, and different.
1: Extremely anxious.
0: Affects. I am most turned on when I am in fear.
1: My first thought was I'm
0: about to die. Stomach clutching despair. Of sadness. I came out over the phone to them. I put myself on the accuracy in fourth grade. Fanny told me I was wrong.
1: The secrecy is what kills us.
0: And I just sat there and cried on his shoulder. And it was the first time I ever felt safe. Like a weight lifted off of me. In order to get rid of your anger, you have to learn how to cry. I started liking myself for the first time.
1: I'm afraid that people are only nice to me because they're afraid
0: I'll kill myself if they're not. Oh, that's fantastic. (laughs) That is fantastic. (laughs) I'm here with uh, Cal, who is a friend from uh, one of my support groups. And we actually uh, have uh, the same guy who kind of mentors us in uh, in the support group. And that's how I met you. And I don't remember how we got on the subject of it, but you started to tell me some of your childhood, and I was like, hey, what are you doing Monday night? (laughs) Come be on my podcast. Um, Before we dive into the specifics of it, uh, you're how old?
1: I just turned 35. Okay. Uh, The last couple days I was trying to figure out how to describe it, because I used to describe it in one way, but one way of putting it is growing up an hour north of Manhattan and Jewish... Insular culture pre-World War II kind of... Uh,
0: Pre-World War II? Yeah, um, kind of mentality. I see. So that uh, some of the advancements in technology didn't really make their way? Or advancements in technology, yes, but the
1: ideology of the community. So I, I sometimes describe describe it as a cult-like community, but it's... I don't know if you're familiar with like a Jewish shtetl, if you will. Mm-hmm. yeah, But it's a... Men and women don't drive, uh, don't walk on the same side of the street.
0: Was it Orthodox?
1: Uh, It's very Orthodox. Orthodox Hasidic. um, So there is men drive, so there are cars. It's not like horse and pony, but there is. uh, They don't speak English. They only speak Yiddish. Mm -hmm. There's no English education. There's no TVs. There's no um, internet unless if uh, it's approved by a rabbi arranged marriages um wow so it's it's when you walk into that community which it is a gated community and you it's impossible to find anyone who isn't jewish and isn't exactly that particular sect living in that community it's not it's almost like a a private its own little town with its own mayor with its own rules with its own Um, security, if you will, almost like its own police. Um, And
0: the population of it would roughly be then and now?
1: I don't know the exact number now. Maybe uh, 15,000 families. Okay. So Um, pretty big. It's pretty big. It's only grown. I mean, they have four to six classes per grade. I mean, there's... Think about this. My grandmother who was a survivor, Holocaust survivor. She came here after the war having lost 12 of her siblings. She had 12 kids. Every single one of her 12 kids had 12 to 17 kids. Oh, my so God. I personally am one of 12 kids. I have 11 siblings. I'm one of 12. I have over 70 nieces and nephews. My grandmother, who's still alive, has over 500 great, great, great Think of like five generations of peopling. So it's a very, very large family, but that's normal for that community.
0: Yeah. How much of the template for having that many kids is part of Jewish orthodoxy and increasing the, the population to uh, spread the message and and maybe be safer and how much is a a reaction to the Holocaust if any
1: I would say it's neither as a as an intentional
0: or conscious um, way of life as in help me understand why somebody would want to have 12 kids that's what I can't wrap my head around
1: well think think of for example my mother she was um they had an arranged marriage when they were 17 when she was 18 she had her first child between 18 and 42 she was busy making babies having children so either either recovering or getting pregnant or having a year or two between and then getting pregnant again and she almost died when she had her last child and the doctor asked would you like us to kind of close you up and mm-hmm. prevent you from having children again and sh- her answer was if god wants me to have another child i'll have another child so there's a very interesting relationship between reality and their their ideological belief system that everything is destined and everything is in god's hands and they there as a mo- them as mothers or as women is an obligation and a privilege to be living in purpose and their purpose is to give birth to children so i don't think it's reactionary certainly not consciously Mm. um i mean my grandmother will speak with pride um look at all these kids they all came from me like they couldn't erase us they couldn't do away with us they couldn't um but that like, wasn't the reason why. It's not a why. Okay. It, the why is literally a religious um, mindset or a religious way of life. Them as women, they give they they just have children.
0: That's, is is there um, uh, is contraception a thing, or is no. that frowned upon? It's Kinda frowned like
1: upon, with- and only in recent years, um, different forms of contraception has has been introduced only in extreme mental illness. Or, in extreme cases, approved by a rabbi, so it's not even as a as a luxury or as a thing to do to prevent from having children is usually looked down upon
0: and how long is is this particular can you name the sect? are you comfortable yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. what's what what is the sect
1: so the name of the town is new square, and, and the name of the sect is square, like as in a square
0: s q u a r yeah
1: um similar to like England New England York New York okay. Square is a town in Ukraine which is where that dynasty of religious sect came from I see. so they their town is New okay. Square
0: Ashkenazi
1: Ashkenazi Jews mm-hmm. um a part of the Square is one of the legs of the major Jew, Hasidic Orthodox Hasidic movements that came from the Hasidic movement back in russia um very it's a fascinating culture i mean for a long obviously for a long time um i had personal resentment and undealt with um stuff having grown up in that world but as a way of life is really really interesting you walk in there and you see even my own siblings who've gotten married had tons of kids and it's like when you're going to wear what is predicted, when you're kind of going to get married is predicted, what you're going to do afterwards is predicted. It's unlike what you would find in normal hmm. normal life. Normal life. I, I would
0: imagine to some people uh, there is a certain amount of comfort and, and ironically freedom in yeah. that, in that you're not laying awake at night saying, should what I be I doing gonna- this, should I be doing that, but... Yeah. If you find it the least bit stifling, uh, it has to be a nightmare.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: what is... I don't normally get too to, uh, political, but uh, what is the, the... Is there a stance on uh, Zionism? It's a very good question
1: because most Orthodox groups or most Jewish groups do have a stand mm-hmm. on it. As in, there are hasidic groups that are very anti-zionist zionist anti-zionistic mm-hmm. if that's a word um like satmar if you will um like who there's a, a sect called satmar oh okay and how, they how do you are spell that
0: uh, I'm, I'm doing this for our transcriber <laughs> right now i'll get it right now he or she <laughs> is clapping their hands saying thank you Paul. <laughs> um
1: With our community, we've always been very neutral, and I'm very amused that I'm saying our community, as in I haven't been a part of that community for most of my life, but they've always been very neutral, meaning the, the leader of the community was always known as, like, even when there were intense public... Discourse between different groups, he was always the neutral one, never taking sides with any of them so even when it comes to Zionism, there's a big there's a, a large following of his Hasidic sect that live in Israel mm-hmm. and they're not against the state they we've usually have integrated very neutrally as in if there's welfare to be taken, obviously they do. Mm-hmm. If there's taxes to be paid; they do. They're not against, or kind of. We've mostly taken the advantage of the opportunity of being able to go back to Israel. Mm-hmm. Whereas some other sects will, even if they would be living there, they would be living in communities mm-hmm. that are very much outspoken against the state. Mm-hmm. Um, so I grew up uh, with a very with a, an intense love for Israel, mm-hmm. and that was the natural place that I moved to or went to in my early teens like did it, you go serve um i did not go to uh, th- i did not serve as in i did not become an israeli citizen i was there either on a student visa or work okay. visas and um,
0: because if you do become a citizen there's you required do military serve. service yeah. right yeah for yeah. both men and women
1: that's correct right so my daughter who is now 13 when she turns eighteen will either have to go to the army or do different forms of service okay. um, but yeah that's in
0: what what I'm trying to uh get a feel for is the mindset you know when you have a community that is uh, uh chooses isolation and to kind of distance itself from mainstream. Uh, culture society whatever to understand why and and because i would imagine that can't help but seep into the world view the interpersonal views of the people raised within that especially the kids who have yet to question it
1: well the answer to that question could be very much seen through the lens of like we were sheltered from ever seeing the outside world i was fortunate and unfortunate that i was growing up i was very curious i was very i had a grandfather who survived the holocaust had written two books about the holocaust spoke seven different languages was this one of my heroes like and this very think of like a a gentleman who went to university pre-war um, helped hundreds of survivors through the war get fake papers and help them to survive and like he was a he was an activist mm-hmm. and he was in brooklyn with this with the founder of our town of like the founder of the current rebbe and which rebbe so the square rebbe who's the leader kind the is head. that
0: rabbi is that just your yeah oh okay so, the square rabbi, mm-hmm. or Rebbe, um, yeah. the head of our community. I wasn't sure if you meant that or Reba McIntyre. A lot of people will confuse the two of them. But go ahead. <laughs> his
1: father was the one who founded the community. Mm-hmm. So His father asked my grandfather to help him physically build the town I grew up in. So, when they went to Muncie, New York, when they went to Spring Valley, New York, where our town is... It was nothing but trees I mean it was literally they went into the woods to start their own little community Mm -hmm. so my grandfather the reason why I'm saying that is I had the opportunity to see the world very differently than a lot of people in that community so even growing up in such isolation I was introduced to more openness than most people growing up in that world So, here I am, I have a relationship with my grandfather, and I've learned a lot about the war, and whenever there was big things happening in the world, we were always hear that from him. Mm -hmm. Uh, My grandmother was the only woman that's one of the two women, I believe, growing up that was still driving in that community. So, my grandfather dressed differently, more modern, a lot more educated. My grandmother's driving. Like, we had different privileges because... He had a very special relationship with the founding, mm. founding Rebbe of the community.
0: And was the founding Rebbe living there as well? Who he was had the already passed? So who was the the? So the I was going the, the, the head person there, and I'm just going to guess it wasn't a woman. It was not
1: a woman. It was uh, Rabbi Twersky, mm-hmm. um, who's the current Rabbi in New Square, and. But to kind of to come back to your question, so I'm growing up with a lot of I, I I remember growing up i I couldn't understand why people had to dress in a particular way. I wanted to dress my own way, and then um people in the community in the community, like kids, like you reach a particular mm-hmm. age and you have to switch over from um, wearing particular type of kippah to a bit like the conformity is so integrated into that mm-hmm. culture that um, you don't really have a choice. It's kind of like you have, you're at this particular age, now you're supposed to do X. And if you don't like it, go home and scream, but you're going to come back to school dressed in a particular way and doing things in a
0: particular way. I went to Catholic grade school for eight years, so I can relate to a little, a little bit, bit, bit of it. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. certainly a minor version of uh, of what you... But in terms of the the, the uniform code, you right. know, if our hair touched our collar... Uh, the The priest would come up behind you and grab you know that hair and kind of lift you up on out. your toes by it, yeah,
1: <laughs> that does not sound traumatizing yeah, at all yeah uh, so. Um, so I was a kid i can 't remember what age when I was recommended to go see a doctor for medication for depression and for acting out and for uh, think of like a soul who just grew up wanting to explore the world wanting to be free wanting to be able to ask questions be able to explore be able to uh, just be me and all through my childhood I was being stifled more and more so I almost feel I, when I look back at my life I kind of feel God had a sense of humor and just by mistake threw me into the wrong um group of people mm-hmm. um i didn't belong there um so as i was growing up um i have tons of siblings i i am i didn't particularly feel very close to my parents uh, i used to joke and i know it sounds a bit harsh but the only time i knew my father really intimately was when he was beating me and i was laying in my own blood now That wasn't regularly and he's not a rageful person he was just a very very pious very disciplined person but just the way he dealt with disciplining me was not a very particular effective way and was mostly
0: beating us did you Uh, get the feeling that it it was his belief that the harder he beat you the better it would work or that he was also letting some of his personal anger out well, I have to believe that it, that was letting some of his anger out. But why do you have to believe that?
1: Because he, if he didn't have pent up stuff, then I would think dialogue would be more of a natural, <laughs> <laughs> more of a, a natural way of wanting to communicate. Hey, you should be hanging out there, not with older Whoa. boys, or not in dark rooms, or like yeah. he once found me in a room rather like hey what's going on with you like are you feeling left out like is there any way that you want to be seen that you're not being seen or you're not being appreciated whatever healthy communication (laughs) would come in Yeah, um, it it wasn't that it was more like you should not have done it and now you're going to be beaten for it Um, but sexual abuse started coming into my life around age eight and nine by the right hand person of the square Rebbe. So think of where he lives and right next to the temple and they kind of they drive cars with sirens and lights and it's almost like a police force of security. Um, Whenever he would drive somewhere they were like flying with lights and sirens and um, there were many times when Square Rebbe would fly somewhere well, literally where um, highways would be blocked off in order for him to be able like you see these people like as above the law like yeah. they are not like he was they, your, they don't he, sit in traffic right. they they fly like the, yeah. the, the particular uh, rules that other people have to obey, obey by doesn't exist like he meets with presidents he meets with um, governors like it's not so his right-hand person is somebody who's really, really powerful growing up in that community. Those are people that you look up to.
0: He's, he's your community's Jerry Sandusky. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. but <laughs> he, he, he was uh, a pedophile who oh, <laughs> uh, was on the football coaching uh, team of, of Penn State. Oh, I was just going to say and, that. Yeah. And he used his access. to do that and a lot of people looked the other way because they didn't want to draw attention to it and because it might put the program at risk
1: so that was exactly that I mean I remember as a kid walking into his office and he would open the safe and I remember seeing stacks of cash Uh, I mean think about it the Square Rebbe sits in his office sits in his in this holy, beautiful, regal room when he sees people from all over the world that come to get his blessing. A part of doing that is they give him what they call a kvittal, or they'll give him a little a little paper with the names of your kids, and it's always attached to a $100 bill or a $50 mm-hmm. bill or a $1,000, or like every single human being that goes in to see this Kvarebi goes in to see them with a note and cash so that's just how they do it that's just mm-hmm. a way of give giving back it's a way of supporting the the leadership it's a, a part of um you give something of you and now then he blesses you with like this it's kind of like when you look at the rebbe uh, there's rebbe and then there's like a clear path to the creator of the universe mm-hmm. and all the requests and desires and aspirations and people being sick or life decisions you go he looks at this piece of sheets and he kind of like goes into this uh, um trance and then he starts praying with you and he gives you directions and mm-hmm. uh, b- gives different blessings and it's always with cash mm-hmm. so
0: and can you hear the cash register over the
1: blessings <laughs> <laughs>
0: no you would just take- see a stack
1: of um little papers with cash on his table and then it would be taken away.
0: Now, why would Uh, people from outside the community be coming in there? Are there... So there's
1: outside... So the square Hasidim, as in uh, people that belong to that sect that live in Bar Park, that live in Flatbush, that live in Williamsburg, that live in Israel, in London, in Antwerp, like all over the world, there are Hasidic um, families that for lack of a better word that um this is the
0: vatican for their
1: exactly for their exactly sect. Yeah. They basically they are what's the word i'm looking for um their allegiance to mm. what's the word i'm looking what's
0: for? what's the the uh generally the roughly the world population that adheres to that sect i
1: don't i, I don't really know okay can't really answer that
0: question um
1: so I would come into the, his right-hand person's office, and there's literally just k- stacks of cash. I, I mean, they would go to their respective places, but I was one of those kids that would walk out of the office with hundreds of dollars in my pocket.
0: Because you stole them, or he gave them to you?
1: Because he gave them to me. He to keep he quiet. would touch me inappropriately many times. There was this ongoing, insane relationship of me asking him for money. And him having access to me. Now, I saw lots of kids my age and a bit older uh, that were always going in and out of his office, and you can never tell why. Although there's cameras everywhere and everything is being recorded, but there could be a million different reasons why I would be there. My grandmother might have sent me to go pick something up, or my mother, who's involved in helping the community in another particular way, was asking a question. I mean, there's everything is so intertwined. Yeah. So me not feeling always very comfortable at home, me feeling always pressured in the community um, for many reasons, um, me being out late um, before different holidays or before, like, when the Square Rebbe's, one of his kids or grandkids will get married, it's like the Super Bowl. I mean, there's lights and there's they're building bleacher, bleachers and signs, and it's... Like, there's always something going on in that community that was this big deal of celebration. Um, But he had, now years later, I know he had years and years and years of history of abusing kids. Mm -hmm. Now, when I got sober at 18 and I started going through my own process of recovery and confronting a lot of, all of the crap that i went through as a kid and having left that community and i mean leading up before 18 it was just rage and anger and i mean it was a community that just got away with anything
0: i I can't imagine how much uh rage and oppression um and confusion you you must have must have felt um how did he? Pres- I'm always interested to know the manner in which perpetrators yeah. present it, spin it, you know, whatever. I
1: mean, it, it's a, it's such a it's such a bizarre topic because there's so many factors at play. So, even being my age, being who he was, he had no right to ever take me outside of the community I mean like he knows the rules like yes maybe I was helping um, build something or maybe I was helping with organizing something which I was many times all through like 9 10 11 um, 12 but so I remember when I was fairly young and I don't remember the exact um, age we would drive out outside of the community he would take me into this building called the Rafu Health Center, which is kind of like, it's not a hospital, but it's it's a medical center, um, which serves for a lot of people outside of the community, but also most of our community uses that. And I, I remember distinctly one particular time where it wasn't even, we never, maybe we did. I haven't thought of the, like, the actual sensation, the communications of what words were exchanged that had the understanding that i was going to get in the car um supposedly by my choice and then drive outside of the community and it was obviously it was so was so significant like i'm sitting in this like this car that has all the lights and sirens and all the gadgets and
0: it's this really important um which which i'm sure in his mind was leverage oh yeah oh yeah oh yeah yeah but it, it wasn't like, and, and,
1: oh, we were going to go to 7-Eleven. There is no 7-Eleven right. around there. And 3 o'clock in the morning, you shouldn't be driving out with a kid outside of the community.
0: And did anybody know that you were with him? No, no. And how many times had you been outside the community? How, how many times would an average kid who was born there and is 11 have seen outside the walls?
1: It's hard to tell. Most kids that age have never left that community. Um, unless if you're a family like us, like we would go away uh, for the summers. We would have, we would go to Muncie, like I, me and my family, we have been outside of the community, not as a kid, I wouldn't go by myself, but I have been out yes. of the community with my family. Um, but there's a lot of kids at that age that have never left. They don't even go away for camp. Like they, mm-hmm. that's the community in the world they live in. Okay. But I, the, the moment the most significant moment of this particular story is walking into that building and remembering like he he would he undid the the alarm of the building and this building is like what i don't know five story building or mm-hmm. four story building uh, massive in my head being this little kid and then the door locking behind me and that chill like the entire hallway walking into the building is dark wow and it's probably around 3 o'clock in the morning and the doors closing the metal doors closing behind me and him turning the alarm on again which means we would have to go up to the next floor before the alarm would turn off and that just the paradox of sheer terror of I can be killed I can be chopped up I can be raped I can be beaten there's nowhere to go that door is locked it's middle of the night and i'm supposed like he's not pulling me in there but there's i've gotten to know a very interesting victimization trance and i'll i'll tell you another story in a what minute a, what a
0: perfect word to describe that, that. It. it's not
1: violent no. it's not coercion but it's almost magnifying beyond choice
0: there's a, there's like a freeze that takes yeah. place in the yeah. and the victim that another um, the, no, the
1: option isn't an option like i could have yeah. ran away it's not no one there was no barriers there was no yes. and that i've studied that you know even and then going upstairs and then bending over in one of the doctor's tables and then him taking off his belt and me negotiating with him if he was going to beat me with his hands with his belt or with a stick and that will determine how much money he would give me like even
0: that so this, this so the in addition to him raping you, he was also beating you. So rape didn't happen in that particular story. Okay. It wouldn't be
1: more fondling and touching. And, okay. um It was never um, violent rape. But how, a part of his perversion,
0: how he would engage touching me. Please apologize to him, by the way, for me assuming that he rapes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Although I, I wouldn't be very, I wouldn't, uh, yeah. Um, I, if I didn't know you, Cal, I wouldn't have made that joke. <laughs> it's all good. Absolutely. Yeah, uh, um, um, but
1: w- what I want to say is that the moment of when that door closed behind me is more embedded in my brain and in my, my brain cell, in my nervous system, than the interaction that happened afterwards.
0: You know, that makes perfect sense to me because when the kid is experiencing the sexual abuse they are generally leaving their body they are dissociating they're going to a place um that isn't there partially yeah you know what i mean whereas leading up to it i would imagine you're a little bit more in your body and that that's like one of the most chilling metaphors i've i've ever heard for uh Experiencing, yeah. I mean, I want to I want to jump
1: ahead because if anyone listened to this, there'll be like this sequence of being able to identify to this particular phenomenon. I remember around that time in my age in my in my life. Again, most people that are in arranged marriages, your siblings are getting married. Most of people, most kids in that community, people are marrying people in that community. Mm-hmm. Only when a kid is. A bit troubled, or if a kid is a bit more modern or a bit more rebellious, they will still marry into a Hasidic family, but from a family outside of the community. Mm. so whenever you do that just like a no to self whenever someone is marrying outside of the community, it's less of an of an ideal uh marriage. so my oldest brother had his own issues and his own problems, so I won't go into detail, but he was marrying somebody from outside of the community. So our entire family was in Borough Park for the weekend, the weekend after he'd gotten married. So I'll give you another visual. This is this huge building. Obviously, I went back years later, and it's not not as big. But as a kid, it's around sometimes in the afternoon, really hot outside in the summer in Brooklyn, New York. And we'd spend the whole afternoon at... A family's home and which was really lovely we came for you know jews they do that three different prayers in a day and so it was close to mincha and we are in this synagogue and if the door was over there
0: mm-hmm.
1: i was standing next to two adults and they were talking to each other and all uh, of a cal sudden was,
0: cal was pointing to his like his far right.
1: right and i'm literally looking northwest and if you're looking at southeast is where the door was Mm -hmm. and you know we had just arrived there nothing in particular was going on in the building and all of a sudden my entire body flipped around like literally someone was pulling my hair chest to four doors right next to each other and towards the end the door was open probably a foot and a half And a guy standing there with a lollipop and showing me to come. What? There's no better way of description. This is exactly how it happened. I'm doing my thing, standing there next to a few adults, and all of a sudden my whole body turns. And I see this guy um, with a lollipop. And all of a sudden I literally felt like he was pulling me through thin air to follow him. I go through that door. I walk down three staircases and he pushes me into the corner and starts pulling down my pants. And all of a sudden, I came to, pushed him away, ran upstairs. I'm out of breath and I'm I'm almost like skipping over um, the stairs. Run back to where I was standing the, before. And the, the few those they look down at me and they go. It was almost like they had, I had no idea how long that took. It could have mm-hmm. been a second. It could have been two minutes. Could have been a half an hour. Time didn't exist. And th- one of the reasons why I, I, when I tell that story, it's, it's kind of like I had this invisible sign on my forehead that said, fuck me. And that's the relationship between pedophiles and victims that I was always fascinated by. There's, there's something in the victimization that victims take comfort in and almost in the re-victimization of abuse. Now I don't understand, mm-hmm. um, and I have not studied it that extensively. I did run a nonprofit mm-hmm. prevention of child sexual abuse. Mm-hmm. I did meet with a lot of uh, offenders and, vi- mm-hmm. I-
0: and victims. Do but you, by by that, you do you mean the act of it or falling under the spell of the falling per- under the spell? Okay, good because I want to uh, clearly delineate between yeah. that um, and. I believe it's something that abusers, all abusers, be it physical abusers. uh, It's like, how do you find out of 10 people who you're going to be able to dominate that way? I think people see it in the eyes. I think they see a hesitation in the eyes and a desire to please. Almost every person that I, well, I should say many, many people that I have met who have been uh, victimized. um, There is a desire to please that that they see a a um I, I don't know i suppose an innocence a a um and is it conscious in the person that does it so. do they think this person's not going to talk i can manipulate this person or i
1: think that's a byproduct but i think before any verbal communication yeah. body language might be a part of it but there is I think there's a an energetic, invisible, dynamic that plays out.
0: I think you're I think you're right because often you'll hear people, uh, you know, a, a woman will share about being at a party, and then all of a sudden, from across the room, the guy yeah. who is will then abuse her for the next five years. Their Magnified, eyes meet, yeah. and they don't see anybody else. Yeah. So I mean, on a more, I just want to make sure that people who have been victims don't think that we are victim blaming. That's that's what I want to, no. to, to be. I, I don't to be think clear it's consciously
1: about. called. You don't ask for it. Uh, I, I I mean, no.
0: But even if you did, that's, no that's amount your of experience.
1: abuse. Yeah, yes. no amount of abuse can ever be justified. Um, and the fact, that if a, abuse happened again, it is the responsibility of the abuser um for doing what he did
0: even if the child asks for but it, it goes it even
1: it has... further uh, from for victims i believe there is an identity that gets built around victimization and that's certainly as you grow up you know when i started going through my own recovery and i started looking at my own actions um their self-beliefs is, right Belief systems, like what was drive, what was making up this this dysfunctional life of mine, and and we can talk about in a moment how that came about. But there is there is a benefit that I there is a benefit and a comfort for being locked in and a victim uh, identity, Mm -hmm. as in. Um, one, I know how to feels two I know how to maneuver around it, like we as human beings, I believe that we built entire self
0: image based on victimization um because at the time we believe it to be true, we believe that to be our worth, and so then we can right. navigate it because there there's no unknown right right
1: I mean. In mental health, you see that a lot. I mean, why do people that are being physically abused stay with their abuser? I mean, it's, yeah. it's rather to stay, rather than, rather than going through so much discomfort and even terror that is predicted than the unknown that it's is not and, predicted.
0: And the same reason why the alcoholic or drug addict will continue to risk their life and everything they hold dear to get right. loaded right. because the idea of trying a life without it. is more terrifying. I might die or I might have to start going to support groups. You know, I'm going to have to get back to you. (laughs) Right. I got to consider my options. So go ahead.
1: Yeah. So that was, uh, you know, I I left the community when I was around 11 years old. And again,
0: that's usually where I pause. Hold that thought for one second. Yeah. We'll come back to it the issue the thing with the lollipop yeah and by the way congrats first stereotypical lollipop moment six years of doing the podcast uh i'm gonna see if i can make you a trophy um (laughs) there i think we had a van in the uh in the second year of the podcast (laughs) somebody who was uh whose perpetrator drove a van um but the the lollipop incident was that with a different person, mm-hmm. and was that before or after the encounters with the second-in-command guy? I don't actually remember. Okay.
1: It was definitely not the same person, mm-hmm. but I can't remember which one was first. Okay. Um, the guy, at second-in-command, with him, it happened quite a few times. Um but I don't remember which one happened first.
0: What do you remember thinking or feeling um, from the moment you would feel that you had no choice in going someplace with this person through the event to sometime maybe the next day or that night or after you got dropped off or whatever? So here, here's an interesting spin on
1: talking about sexual abuse. I didn't even talk about those experiences as sexual abuse until around
0: 18. Most people don't. Most, Most people, people
1: don't, don't because maybe you don't want to put a name on abuse.
0: Or you don't think it was abuse. You, right. th- you think that you had a choice because you didn't uh-huh. fight or a uh, part of it felt good or you felt sorry for that person, or whatever, but most of those
1: experiences with him almost felt like I had more control so there there's a very there's a few very distinct i i mean like if I was an adult it's, and I'm looking at a lot of, a little kid and the mm-hmm. kid is really confused, and mm-hmm. the kid is like feels taken advantage of like obviously i'll look at him and be like you're a kid like regardless of what was going through your brain Mm -hmm. or your mind it's not relevant he's an adult you're a kid you should know love security predictability healthy environments any adult that breaks that should be thrown off a building for lack of a better word like if i'm looking at it as black and white and i go no you as a kid you are come you come into the world what you should know is safety. Mm-hmm. What you should know is security. So when you go into the big, crazy adult world, um, you can start adapting to the lack of security and predictability nice. in a healthy way. Yeah. But first you should have security.
0: So you can know what it feels like. Right. So you'll know when you don't have
1: it <laughs> Right. that something needs to change. So I, I get intellectually that there is, yes, I get that. And the peak turn on and the peak vibrancy and the peak aliveness of my nervous system growing up was in those moments and that's what i almost looked for for the rest of my life the adrenaline the adrenaline those peak experiences so that moment where i could die or i can be really amused is a, is a, is an edge that has stayed with me and i've kind of had to learn through meditation and through many other practices to to get used to the de, the the lack the not so mm-hmm. peak experiences what do you mean when you say or i could be amused or i can be amused um or the worst won't happen either the worst will happen or or it'll be entertaining or it would be
0: um, I mean when you're being abused so when I was laying
1: be- in that when I was laying in that bed or in the doctor's office bent over being beaten in a way that almost was unbearable there's something about that experience that experience that had me feel amusement really? yeah there's something about that experience that had me be had me feel more alive than my boring day-to-day life. Wow! So, the reason why I didn't call that abuse is because it didn't feel well violating in a little bit, but it didn't feel
0: like it was, like I was being
1: taken advantage of. I it felt like. I was relevant and significant to someone important while feeling really really high sensation now feeling high sensation is fairly neutral um the younger the child and the higher the sensation could be traumatizing for Mm -hmm. the nervous system not even as an intellectual thing but just for the nervous system being like no now it should know safety it should know fight or flight shouldn't be happening right now <laughs> right
0: and if you can't flee that's usually when right.
1: dissociation does right. what it's supposed to do yeah. which
0: is your brain flees
1: right so this is where my experience has very frequently differ and when i go back into my experiences and i talk to other victims you know most victims or a lot a lot of victims the definition of their victims means they mean that they have been violated. There's something that happened to them that they, in their right mind, would not want to have happened to them. They were touched in a particular way, hurt in a particular way. Um It confused them. The scars stayed inside them, and I always felt that the trauma, for lack of a better word, that I went through, was. Educational in one way, Um, introduce me to different domains of my own personal life and my own personal experience that I would not have gotten if I was just a normal child treated normal normally. Um, So I only started using abuse when I started encountering other victims from this community. And from victims that I know who were victimized by him, that his interactions with them were a lot more crazy and more abusive, and so i so yeah that's it's an interesting topic in what this. do
0: you mean it it introduced you to areas of your life that that help me understand the parts of it that that you Uh,
1: What I mean by those other aspects of my life?
0: Yeah, the positives. Help me understand, or at least for a portion of time in your life that you saw as positive. I assume, you do you still feel that there were positive things that came out of it for for you personally? Yeah. Okay, help me understand those. Because I think right now the listener is going... What about
1: that could be positive? Exactly. Okay. The way I used to describe it to people is like, as a kid, you grow up and there's like a little faucet that eventually this thing called sexuality. Mm -hmm. And at different stages in one's life, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, that faucet kind of gets opened naturally um, in a particular rate. Now, what happened to me is that
0: someone opened that faucet really fast at a younger age. Because it was just by its nature, such sensory overload, emotionally and physically. But
1: that sensation was, is, and was within my capacity of feeling as a human. So, and here is a completely different topic, and then I'll come back to this for a second. When I went through a ton of different conferences on sexual abuse and pedophilia and trying to understand that whole dynamic, um, I've I remember learning the the implications of abuse is a lot harsher. Past abuse than the actual abuse, meaning oh, the I shame, definitely, definitely the integration, that. Yes. The, all that. The, that the experience and in itself that we call the abuse or that was actually abuse is more neutral.
0: And it, it's a drop in the bucket. Yeah. Generally, in terms of the ripples, the yeah. ripples are the part that
1: exactly hurt your life. Meaning you're, you can't, you're not sharing it with anybody. You're afraid. You're you're ashamed, or you don't, felt really good, and you don't yes. really know where to
0: place it. You don't trust people, right?
1: Yeah. So not all abuse is you took something really hard, something really big into a small hole, and you and right. there's blood and there's violence. Not yes, that happens, and it's so. Insanely unfortunate. But a lot of the times it happens. You are coddled, you are Mm -hmm. pursued, you are um, made to feel powerful, manipulated, you are made special, powerful, Mm -hmm. and so on. And so for me, yes, I was made feel special. Yes, I was rewarded. Yes, I was given props to even come back for it again. But I was introduced to I think the world of BDSM mm-hmm. at a very young age I felt more powerful being submissive mm-hmm. The high sensation points of abuse was kind of pleasurable mm-hmm. uh, I would venture to say as a as an adult who is being beaten with a stick or with a cane or with a whip and can hardly sit at the same sensation sensations and the same experiences that I did when I was eight, nine years old, well granted well, if it was my child, I would want to rip mm-hmm. that person apart, but given it given that it was me and now looking to my experience from my adulthood I don't see it as abuse so i've always seen myself as privileged in the sense that this thing that we call resilience that most psychologists and psychiatrists could never give me a a, a normal correct answer Mm -hmm. on what that actually is but i would assume that it's very similar of a word than like what is a spiritual experience well Mm -hmm. we can give you some parameters and it, it, it translates to different people differently but i feel once i started dealing with my own With forgiveness around the anger and the anger was not so much that experience the anger was so much was more about being abandoned not being understood and naturally so Um, by your parents but my parents by the community okay Um, as in I wasn't looked after I, I wasn't when I started questioning the leadership in the community when I started telling other people about what had happened when I started talking To other kids who I saw leave his office, I was the one who was being punished or like they just wanted to do away with me. So the way they dealt with me was to take me out of the community and place me with a family in Brooklyn.
0: You know, instead of confronting that guy. Exactly. When the child goes to a parent or an entrusted adult and tells them what happened and nothing is done right or the child is shamed or some other negative thing that people say that that was often more traumatic than right. the events themselves and um Two things uh, that that strike me. Number one is, uh, you know, if you've ever heard a a dominatrix interview, the one of the things they'll say is most of their submissive clients are people who are powerful in their everyday life. And the second thing, when you were talking about the nervous system kind of expanding that, that faucet widening, is it reminds me of almost exactly what war veterans describe, that when they come home, they it's miss dull. that rush. Even though they don't want yeah. to see their buddy get killed, The intense, they miss the intensity of it because they've never felt more alive. Yeah, let's
1: get back to that, that because let's, I derailed with that.
0: Uh, one of my guests, Jesse Perez, in his episode, he was a gang member, and he said the greatest high I've ever had was being shot at.
1: Yeah. You can't... There's no option to get distracted. There's no option to... Like, I'm the guy... I remember being a, a part of this organization in San Francisco a couple of years ago, and at one day, we found out that somebody had just shot herself, and the entire room is freaking out, and I just get crystal clear, mm-hmm. focused, you do this, you do that, sit down, take some water, shut up, call this person, and I saw the same thing when bombs were exploding in Israel. Like, there was a suicide bomb once, I was downtown, everyone is running away, Including my ex wife, mm-hmm. and I'm running toward it. Like there's there and again Things slow down for you. It goes back yeah. to that experience. But coming you- coming back to that analogy of So I feel like maybe I was traumatized, maybe I was privileged, regardless of the label of was it right or was it wrong, I was just introduced to higher
0: levels of sensation. Mm. Now when are you saying that you can't clearly label it wrong? Or are you saying whether or not I benefited from that door being opened? In I my-
1: absolutely can label it wrong from the perpetrator. Right. Meaning he was an adult. I was a kid. Right. That, that is black and white. Right. Interpreting my experience, I don't feel victimized. I feel...
0: Do you realize how how crazy that sounds, though? <laughs>
1: Be- because I, well, well I, yeah, because well, I've sat around victims. Yes. I've cried with hundreds of victims, and I've listened to yes. insane stories all yes. through my life. And I'm not
0: clearly not calling you crazy. Yeah. I just my purpose <laughs> with this podcast is to help people with different experiences understand ourselves and other people, and so I I want. What you're sharing, since it not a lot of people speak about it as candidly as you do or have the experience that right. you do, I want to make sure that we're uh, we're not being fuzzy in some of the things that that we describe yeah, um, are you saying that the overall net was a positive for you, or that just by having some things come out of it that you use in your daily life? it doesn't feel like the typical victim scenario?
1: I mean, it's a really good question, because I haven't thought of it for a very long time. And now when I'm thinking back before age 18, so w- when it all fell apart, mm-hmm. <laughs> when it, when when this rageful, angry, full of resentment, drug addict of a kid um, was coming crashing down, um, I remember sitting with this rabbi once in Brooklyn and he's telling me, I'm telling him some of my stories. He's telling me some of his stories and he was also a survivor. And I, I remember having this cathartic moment of how are you so affectionate or how are you so caring? I remember looking at him and being like, you are representing of that community, but at the same time, you're representing care in compassion to what i went through and i remember my brain kind of short circuiting so for me to say that i've always believed that my experience growing up was a positive would be a lie okay cuz all through my teens i was i used to envision taking a gun and shooting that guy mm-hmm. i used to uh, i was rageful against that culture so i can't say i was like uh it helped me come to be right. this healthy right. good human being um, but it's very interesting, even now, sitting right here, like thinking about how disturbing that experience was up to eighteen, and now there's not a conscious cell in my body who that sees that experience as negative um no part of it is negative no
0: other than the fact that this guy is other than still... the fact that
1: he's still not in prison, yeah, and his son is married to my youngest sister. Oh my god! <laughs> oh my god! So, so it gets better. <laughs> so, <laughs> I'm walking in San Francisco, um, more in, in Berkeley, in yeah. the Bay Area, one Friday afternoon, and my mother calls me. She goes, "Call me. I need you to sit down." And I'm like, "She call At this point, we're in communication frequently, and I go, "Okay, this is bad. I'm sorry, somebody had died," and she goes sit down, I need to ask you something. And I go, okay, I walk into Starbucks, I sit down, and I go, okay, what's going on? She goes, well, you know how your sister is now 17, 18? I go, yes. What's around that time when she's supposed to get married? I go, yes. And a few different matchmakers, Shatchanim, have recommended the same boy. So in my head, I'm like, obviously, this guy, this boy must be a really good candidate that different individuals in the community kind of felt it. And I go, well, that's great news. Why, why Why do you need me to sit down? You could have just told me that. She goes, well, I want to tell you one thing that if you are not okay with it, I will never ask you again. I will never question you. We will never go through with it. And you will never hear of this again.
0: (laughs) What's Yiddish for the kicker?
1: (laughs) (laughs) And I go, okay. And she goes, well, he's the son of, and then names his name. And the first thing that popped into my head before I can have any logical other thought was don't punish the son for the sins of his father.
0: Oh, I thought it was going to be, I'll kill him at the wedding. <laughs> I know. I know.
1: It wasn't anything close to that because yeah. I had already shaken his hand. I've already done my forgiving of my past, forgiving of him. I had already gone back to the community. I've confronted some mm-hmm. some individuals in the community. So this is at, at a point where I felt I had made, pa- made peace, peace with my past. Mm-hmm. And I had gone through lots of therapeutic processes and at this point i wasn't living my life based on what had happened to me and uh my mother's like no 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 no! i don't want you to decide right now i want you to take the weekend and we'll talk after the weekend and i'm like great I, I i'm happy to take the weekend but i don't have if he has not been abused and if he's healthy and if he's meant to be with my sister you know his father will have what mm-hmm. what 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 he yes as in, we'll deal with his father separately. Dad had me actually, it created this entire chain of, of, of events that was incredible for many people, including myself. I went back to New York, and the way my girlfriend would tell the story, the woman that I was dating at the time, that I went to my sister's wedding in New York, and six months later, she boxed up all my stuff from, from the closet and sent it to New York. I literally had just gone for a weekend and stayed in New York, um, confronted him again the father i went to the wedding confronted him and all of a sudden out of nowhere unexpectedly all these victims came out of everywhere all every hole in the wall mm-hmm. um basically to, you or to me publicly? yeah came out to me being like one a consideration i never thought of as in, you're the only one who can actually confront him because you're not in the community. You don't care about what he's going to do to you, or he mm-hmm. can't have any effect on you. Uh, why do you think he wants to marry into your family? And that I don't think that was ever a consideration on his
0: end, although I don't know. It oh, because now he, looking back, because he make arranged sense. the marriage. Not the son didn't choose the marriage. Was I mean? Arranged. It's always between families. Mm-hmm. It's that's like actually like uh a whole like sixteenth century it. <laughs> it's like Shakespeare. You know, you would marry somebody uh, you know, the daughter of the king you didn't want to go to war with. <laughs> it's... Yes, yes. So I don't
1: I will never know unless if I can see his mind. I don't know if that was ever a consideration. But that switched something in me being Huh. And then they started going they wanted me to confront him for them. The the survivors. Those other victims.
0: And did your Brother-in-law know that his father had done these things to you? And did your sister know these things? I never... Because your mom knew. Yeah,
1: my mom knew. I don't know... I know that my sister and his son found out after I had... There was a documentary and a video that went viral. Me talking about my experience and naming him. Mm -hmm. Um,
0: And why not name him here?
1: I I don't know. I, I haven't even...
0: I'm not pressing you to do no, it. I just want you to know if I you- found
1: myself not saying it, although I don't have any problem with it being said. Okay. Um, so I come back for the wedding. Um, his name is Hershey Breyer. I'm I participating in the, the wedding. The brother-in-law or the... the his father. Okay. So the, the guy who sexually abused me abused, okay. I, I want to say, hundreds of other people. Okay. Although I don't know the exact number. So I confront him. I sit down with him and I go, here's this name, this name, this name. They, I believe they should have some closure to what had happened to them. And basically the ultimatum we're giving you is you either come out publicly and admit what you did so they can have some peace of mind and not feel like they're completely crazy or we're going to pursue legal actions. As in you do whatever you're going to do, but we're going to take it to the DA's office, we're going to take it to actually reporting it as a crime or report the abuse. And his entire concern in that conversation was what could he do to silence them? Of course.
0: Of course. Of course. I was
1: I mean the amount of disappointment on my end why I didn't record it is never I mean, I have met with the FBI, I've met with the the DA's offices, I've met with detectives. I wish I had that conversation on tape, because afterwards when I started going after it, I was not able to, um, but you know, there there was never the denial of
0: what he's done, um, he was uh, so let's back up a little bit so he didn't deny it to you but he just wouldn't say it publicly and he wouldn't apologize to the right. other victims right
1: there was no press release there was no i mean so so here's the thing so when i got when i was 18 and i went into rehab um upstate new york a second cousin of mine who found out that i was going to treatment came in and the first time i talked about my abuse was when i was in rehab now he is Upset, pissed off, rageful for what had happened. He is committed to go to confront the Square Rebbe about his right hand person. And he's basically threatening, and there was a huge ordeal. Never got the, ra- the exact details, but there was screaming. He was kicked out of the room. There was literally confronting the Square Rebbe. Um, nothing happened publicly. But he, Hershey Breyer, was sent to treatment for his behavior, for his pedophilia, he just, he, yeah, for his... He just used air quotes. Yeah, yeah. for his uh, um, proclivities. <laughs> so the entire community... I, so granted, I mm-hmm. had left when I was 11-ish. All through my teens, I go through what I go through. Drug abuse, trying to deal with life, homicidal thoughts, suicidal mm-hmm. thoughts... All that I get sober I confront my feelings for the first time lots of crying lots of waking up lots of incredible experiences that we can write a book about but I now found out find out that he the entire community knew that something was up with him because he was given an ultimatum to go for treatment so he's losing his entire hair so years later I find out that the authorities, the whatever committees that are can influence him, that are responsible for the PR in the community, mm-hmm. and the safety of the community, and the finances of the community, knew that he had a problem, mm-hmm. and he was sent to treatment for his pedophilia. So now, I'm assuming he has no sex drive. I'm assuming he's recalibrating to life in... Uh, I don't know the exact term, but there is a treatment for pedophiles where...
0: What? Uh, the hair, he, he lost his He's hair. He was going to mean?
1: treatment for his pedophilia, and the result of the treatment that he was going through, he lost his hair. Because of a chemical or the, yeah. st- the stress of no, treatment? No, because of the chemical. Like oh. the by- one of the byproducts of taking that oh, injection. So was he
0: chemically castrated? Yes. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. Um, I was, forget that term. Oh, okay. yeah. He was chemically okay. castrated. He's losing his hair. He's going through all the shame, but then recalibrated recalibrated into the community and never lost his position never lost his role never lost Mm. so here I am I come back to the community after being away for many years I go to the wedding I sit down with him and go I'm sorry this is not gonna work for me or for them anymore whatever you did that you think um, that you've done right with the world and the people that you've abused I'm now hearing from other kids in the community that you're still inappropriate, and I'm literally looking at pictures mm-hmm. that you're still inappropriate with, with kids. Kids are st- young teenagers are still receiving money from you, and we know you're not just giving out money. So, so I basically give them this ultimatum. I then started the process of creating my nonprofit from that whole interaction. So. We started looking for other kids or young adults who were still within the statute of limitation to testify against him. We couldn't find that. We couldn't find anyone who would be willing to. One night, he disappears, escapes the very community that he's running, responsible for, invested millions of dollars in real estate in, and literally escaped without his in-laws even knowing where he was going um so i don't know the exact time i don't know the exact date but his wife being informed his family immediate family finding out of who he has been and the ramifications of what he's been all started crumbling at the same time and he literally bolted Mm -hmm. before any actual arrest or any indictment was going to happen Mm -hmm. and escapes to israel
0: and that's where he is now. And now that's where he is. And they won't extradite
1: him. They won't expedite him because they don't have a case. Because they don't have any v- victims that are with- within the, still, the statute of limitation that would be willing to testify. A so
0: podcast doesn't count?
1: Nope. It's, I've been it's on national one, television. It's a good one. Yeah, but this is, a,
0: <laughs> this is a podcast.
1: Although it's, here uh, in L.A., the statute of limitation has been um, changed. Thank
0: God. In thank a God. lot of places. One of our former guests did a like fifteen thousand mile walk through Europe wow. to bring awareness to um the outdated laws uh, protecting children yeah. and he had laws changed in many many um wow countries yeah maddie McVarish. Uh, that's amazing a great, great episode um, so is that one of the things that you mean that came out of this was that you right. Found this purpose in your life.
1: Found the, the nonprofit that then gave voice to many people to go get treatment. Um, in my own experience, like I, I spent many years at an organization in San Francisco that was focusing on orgasm. So there was a, there's a lot of about my personal life, mm-hmm. um, in my. Adult identity of a person in my own personal relationships that have blossomed and have given me a lot of power and satisfaction that kind of came out of what I went through.
0: What, is, what do you mean when you say the orgasm organization? So there's an organization in San And Francisco. by the way, I never want to use their keyboard. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, yeah. Well, there's an organization in San Francisco that I was a part of that teaches and practices orgasmic meditation. Okay. Just like. Is it similar to Tantra or no? It has a lot of similar concepts to Tantra, but it's a very, very particular practice of a strokee and a stroker, and Mm -hmm. basically the practice of bringing more awareness into pleasure in the body so again back to the spectrum of sensation Mm -hmm. how much people allow themselves to feel now this is a a very deliberate practice that has x amount of time x technique uh in a very safe container um which i think every adult should be introduced to that practice before they get entangled in the misconceptions and the insanity around desire and sexuality and so on but Um, I I grew up in a world where social structure, political structure, economic structure um, the norm I kind of left as a kid so my entire life as an adult has been the exploration and the search of alternative lifestyles, alternative sexualities, alternative viewpoints to purpose and so Mm -hmm. on so one of those things that um, that was so, a part of my journey was that
0: so many things you you took from this and i you know i just had this image in my mind of you made it out of the bur- burning building with some <laughs> lamps and some chairs you know <laughs> what i mean and some people die in that burning building some people leave with nothing and they lost every thing right. in there um and I, I would count myself as one of the people, while I am not glad that what happened to me as a kid happened to me as a kid, I'm glad that I've been able to salvage some positives from it mm. um, to begin questioning the world. Right. Um, that to, was like a
1: one of the things that caused you to question.
0: Yeah, because I put all the shame love. on myself. And right. so then I am just always trying to read people. I'm, right. sh- I'm sure you're great at reading a room mm. and oh, yeah. picking up on vibes from from people and, you know, on and on and on and on. And, and doing this podcast brings meaning and purpose into my life. And I, know, I
1: mean, I think I see so many people that have accomplished so many great things. Mm-hmm. Most of them were damaged goods at some point. Most of yeah. them were so beaten into something that the way that they dealt with horrific experiences was greatness mm-hmm. or getting really good at something yeah. or building something in I response agree. to what they went through. I agree. So I agree. if you go back, it's like, would I have wanted to be a normal kid? Hell no. A normal kid would have had
0: me stay in that community. Yeah. Wow. There, there, There's so many things to ponder about your story and the places that it... It led, Um, but I'm so glad you came and shared it because um, the average person who isn't a survivor has no idea the scope of experience and ripples. Um, And and I'm glad you brought up intensity, sexual intensity, because it is a topic that isn't really discussed too much or the sensory overload be it sexual or ptsd or or anything else but
1: yeah um, i want i want to point out something very interesting that had happened to me so this guy mikey this big muscular black guy i'm locked up in rehab around 18 years old and one day i'm walking around with that look in my face of contemplating suicide now I wasn't looking at myself. I wasn't in front of a mirror. I'm assuming it looked at a pati- it
0: looks it looks a particular way. Do you call it your rest, resting death face? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm probably look devoid of yeah. any excitement. Um, and he comes up to me, and I will never forget where he walked up to me and we started a conversation. And he goes, "Cal, perhaps there's no point to live. Perhaps there's no reason." There's no goodness in your life that you can come up with to say, hey, there's good purpose to live. Or like, there's nothing, uh, you don't see a point to this life that you're currently living. But imagine in 20 years from now, there'll be another person who will have the same exact experiences as you, and you will be the only person to save that person's life. Wouldn't you want to be alive to see that? And that was the first time in my adult life that I stopped... Like living was not so much anymore about me that perhaps my experience would be able to have some impact on somebody. It it shifted something so monumental that its effects was, I only felt for the next 15 years of, and I remember the commitment in my head at that time was, that I will always share my experience, regardless of how inappropriate it is, regardless of how stifling it is, because if there's one person in an entire room that will be able to relate to my experience and will give them hope or will give them the feeling, oh my God, I'm now the only one, that my life will be worth living. And since that point, I remember I was living in Israel, and one day I found myself in the same exact situation where I'm sitting at a at a, a, a pizza shop in downtown Jerusalem, and we kind of played a very deliberate game. It was like literally fifteen people around the table, and we're all talking. and I had a few rules, like you can't you can't um, disagree with somebody, and if somebody is sharing while they're standing and talking, you can't interrupt them. So people have to kind of finish what they were saying, and then if you want to pick up the conversation from there please do so but it was no there was no you can't respond to that person mm-hmm. you just share whatever came up for you or not and the conversation obviously was doing organically what it was doing but i was taking it towards sexual abuse in the jewish mm-hmm. world and the hasidic world there's a lot of kids there that came from that world and when i came out this woman came into my face and she goes how dare you like how dare you talk about such sensitive um topics in public And I told her the same exact story that I just told you about Mm -hmm. Mikey. And it was only a couple months later she walked up to me again and and basically told me it was the first time she had heard somebody talk about sexual abuse the way I did. She went back to London, confronted the rabbis that had abused her. Like this entire chain of events that had happened um, of her now going to – school to become a therapist and and she years later she started a paper in London that wow. a, a, in a center like there was this entire and that was just one of I can consider until I'm yes. blue of stories that that came from that commitment of like I will share my story if you're uncomfortable that's on you mm-hmm. but um what and obviously you, what if you're in an elevator <laughs> well Elevators, you don't really have that much time to have an entire, well, uh, but you, yes.
0: Yeah, you got to do the condensed pitch yeah. of your of your story. Um, I cut yeah. you off. I'm sorry. No, no, no. I love to kill momentum with a half-baked joke. <laughs> um, but what that, how that woman reacted to you, it, the fact that she was a, a survivor yeah. who hadn't dealt with it yet, every time I hear a parent shut down, a child that comes to mm-hmm. them, I always think the same thing. That person doesn't want to deal with their abuse, their and that's mm-hmm. why it's easier to call your child a liar, you know, or whatever. Or they're afraid of being on their own, or what, you know, whatever. But yeah. um, thank you so much for for coming and, and sharing all Absolutely. this. Um, and uh, it I was re- my pleasure. I Absolutely. just really appreciate it. Absolutely, what a great guy! Um, I'm so lucky to have people. Uh, like him in my life. That's one of the things I love about recovery so much is you, you get surrounded by people who are seeking a better internal life. Um, and it's been my experience that the people that seek a better internal life, um, all the outside stuff just has a way of, of working out, um, as we do the internal work and, learn to set boundaries and do all these other concepts that were so new uh to to so many of us when we started doing them but um that's it for the the show um this week um again i wish i had the energy to do some more uh surveys here but uh you know My head is made of marshmallow, maybe because I've been doing nothing but eating marshmallow. Um, I'm not convinced that a ghost isn't controlling me and making me get up and uh, to my sunrise sugar workout. Anyway, I hope you heard something tonight that uh, helped you, inspired you, comforted you, um, provoked you, did anything other than bored you. That would be the worst. Uh, actually you probably wouldn't still be listening at this point. You probably would have turned it off, but, um, now I'm just starting to run my mouth and, uh, that's not good for either of us. So never forget that you are not alone and uh, we are all connected. And I believe that one of the reasons that we are on this planet is to feel the peace and the joy of helping each other. And being good to ourselves. And uh, thanks for listening.
1: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way. Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.